This episode of Reasonably Spontaneous Conversation is brought to you in part by Clay Boykin Life and Business Coaching, because we all get stuck at times. For more information, visit clayboykin.com. By Janelle Bean, for fun and engaging children's books with cute and colorful characters. For more information, visit janellebean.com. And by Wise Owl Organizing, simply set up for you. Organizing consulting and clarity coaching, virtual or in person. For more information, visit wiseowlorganizing.com. What a time to talk to a scientist. I mean, this is this is thank you for for taking the time, not just for taking the time, but for the breadth of your work. Thank you. It it is so cool to meet a uh, another to meet a conscious being who is looking at himself and looking at the world and and saying just wow. What's going on here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is weird. <laughs> I know, I know, and not just weird. I mean, even before this, it is weird. I, ju- I just, it's, it's just, it, yeah, it's no, the whole thing, the whole, the whole kit and caboodle, yeah, uh, the whole catastrophe, as they say, of being alive on the world is just, yeah, yeah. it's just strange. Yeah, no, I'm always amazed that like people, more people aren't like, you know, waking up every morning <laughs> being like, whoa, another one of these, you know, another day, okay, you know, yeah. It's, it's 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 extraordinary. This idea of consciousness, this idea of a uh, of uh, how this works, this awareness of ourselves is yeah. just now how I'd, I'm I'm really into origin stories. Like when I when I read when I read about Feynman, I'm really interested in like him as a, as a little boy, how his father, a non scientist, yeah, got him excited about. Look, if a, a T-Rex were this tall, it would be looking out your bedroom window. Now, why is that? Yeah. So tell me yours. Tell me some of your origin stories and, and just t- dip into your repertoire. My origin story uh, is that I was raised in um, New York City or the environments. I grew up actually in New Jersey, uh, the industrial yeah. parts of New Jersey. And uh, my dad was a writer. And not a scientist, but he had a strong interest in science. And what happened for me was that he had a lot of science, uh, science fiction, uh, those pulp magazines, you know, astounding oh, fiction. And I, I, all those writers made yeah. their money. Heinlein and all of yeah. them made their money in that pulp fiction. Right, world. right, right. It was an amazing time because those guys were really setting the foundation for you know the imagination of the world we live in now you know they were imagining the world we live in now and it was all in those you know those little crappy uh uh uh, you know um uh, you know uh, crappy paper uh uh, magazines but you know the 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 artwork the famous artwork on the front of those that's what got me i was about five years old and i would like look at my dad's i'd come down to his library and i'd look at his um, those the covers of those magazines, and you know there were pictures of bug-eyed monsters, but but really what got me were the pictures of like you know uh, astronauts bouncing around on on you know jagged mountains of the moon or whatever in their Michelin tire uh, spacesuits. <laughs> um, and that just yeah that just fueled my imagination. So I got I you know fell in love with astronomy then, and as I like to say, the affair never cooled. So. Cool. Uh, my dad was great that he took me to the Hayden Planetarium, you know, which is where many, you know, uh, many a 
young astronomer, you know, learned his uh, or found his passion. So we go to that almost every other weekend. Uh, and much, much to my sister, my sister's chagrin. Yeah. <laughs> That's what really did it for me is that was got started. And so I knew, you know, there's never any question for me about what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to be an astronomer. I knew yeah. that, uh, you know, I was interested in physics. But but I also discovered early on Carl Sagan's writing. So, you know, like, again, like many people, Carl Sagan yeah. was my introduction to um, science and physics. And, of course, his writing was so broad. Yeah. <sighs> right. So he was like... He, you know, he'd tell you about relativity, but in telling you about relativity, he'd also tell you about 15th century Venice. Um, and that, you know, that kind of style of, of thinking about science and, and culture broadly is something I got infected with very early. And uh, that, you know, is very much my writing now still has that. I'm interested in everything. Like there's no part of experience that's not weird and worth attention. So, so how did you at the at the time uh, deal when when you got the flush of testosterone coming out of your uh, <laughs> and started flooding? What years were those, and what was the culture like when that happens? Because testosterone is a really major drug to be flooding <laughs> into a, 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 these little boys. I mean, it's 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 hard as it's hard as shit yeah. to be able to deal with it. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's true. So teenagers, so I was I was already heavily into science fiction and I was heavily I read a lot of comic books too I was a big Marvel fan yeah and uh those actually helped uh, quite a bit so I grew up in a town called Belleville, Belleville New Jersey which yeah. is uh an Italian uh Irish Roman Catholic uh neighborhood um I was the only I was the only Jew in the entire town which is funny because you know my parents weren't religious but yeah. um so, you know, it was not, a, it was a great place. I mean, the people were awesome. It was, you know, it was a, it was a trip growing up there. You know, a lot of low-level crime, you know. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, but in a way that somehow I always, you know, was always kind of, I knew, I knew I was going to be an astronomer. So everything I got involved with was just more, you know, uh, more, more experience in yeah. some way. So, um yeah, the funny thing about my high school was, you know, it wasn't very difficult. So it wasn't like it wasn't they weren't pushing me, but I learned all kinds of great things uh, that have actually, you know, served me well over over time. I, someday I'm going to write a book called Everything I Needed to Know I Learned from New Jersey. Um, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and then also I had New York, too. You know, I started going, my, you know, much of my family lived in Manhattan or around those environments. So I started going into New York, you know, from an early age. And that city in many ways, you know, the, the, the complexity of that city, the richness of that city also fueled my imagination and my ambition, you know, to understand things. There's a way in which New York, you know, when you're walking around New York, the city kind of leans down on you and says, who the hell do you think you are? You know, and you have to kind of rise up and be like, hey, I've got ideas too, you know. Um, so yeah, that was helpful. But I knew I wanted to get the hell out of there. Yeah. So I did my um, undergraduate in Colorado, in Boulder, Colorado. Oh, what a great place what year was that uh, i was 80 i got out there so that was 80 this was after the 60s when the 60s went they went through that amazing transformation during the 60s yeah now you get to get there so what was what was boulder like then boulder then by that time you know it was called the place where the hip meet to trip right <laughs> this was very much the drug era and it would yeah. already become, you know, it was the 80s, so money was starting to come, really start to matter. So it still had that kind of hippie thing going on. But all of the rich people sent their kids to Colorado, to Boulder, because of the skiing. And I actually went there because of the skiing, too. I had started, you know, in New Jersey, I had actually picked up a, the ski 
the bug, which in yeah. New Jersey is pretty funny because, you know, they just basically hose down garbage dumps and you ski down. <laughs> them. Um, so I got out there and, and what was funny was it was basically, a, you know, it was a party school. But yeah. I luckily for me, it was also a powerhouse of astronomy. So um, I was the only of all my friends. I was the only one who actually studied. So uh, that was kind of funny. And we know what's interesting about that, too. It was also one of the places where astrobiology was beginning. Yeah. So this is in the 80s, and it was just at the beginning when people were beginning to think differently about life in the universe. You know, like uh, the, the field of astrobiology as an experimental science yeah. in terms of looking at extremophiles and things like that on Earth. That was uh, happening there. So Chris McKay, who's one of the founders, you know, the mo modern founders of uh, astrobiology, was my TA. He was a graduate student there for my oh undergrad. Oh, my was God. Cool. I was talking with him, and I still, you know, I still I see him every now and then, but... um. So yeah, so Boulder was, the other important thing for me about Boulder was that it was also the home of the Naropa Institute, which was, um, you know, the first Buddhist university in, yeah. in America. So Allen Ginsberg was out there and other people. And I had already started to develop an interest in contemplative practice. Yeah. So uh, that was an interesting thing as well. So my first uh, intensive, my first meditation intensive, I did a Shambhala intensive of two days of meditation. I was like 19 years old, you know? Um, and that was fascinating, because that was really, that was my introduction to the, you know, contemplative practice and its importance. All right, man, I, I'm, I'm, I wanna, um, I have been doing a thought experiment that the distance from the tip of my nose <laughs> to the light cone at the absolute farthest that there could possibly be is exactly the same distance in parsecs from the tip of my nose to the center of my soul. Mm. That there is a balance here. So I, I just, yeah. just as a, so, I, so I just get to say that to a scientist and and and, and a practitioner of meditation. So thank you for allowing me to say yeah. that. However, yeah. How, however it is. So how did that change you? How did that suddenly? That, that that opportunity to explore your inner universe and to say that uh, and in, in that particular way, what, what how did that make an, a, an impact on well, you, interesting. Adam? So the one, one part of the biography that's important is that um, when I had a, um, a brother who was killed in a car accident when I was nine and he was 15, uh, a drunk driver came across the side of the road and, and killed him and three other people in a car. My For that experience, you know, I had... I had a lot of grief and a lot of anger, you know, which was, you know, that's also part of, you know, growing up in Jersey too. Some of the stuff I was involved in was that was playing out. So, you know, I mean, like many people, I came to contemplative practice, you know, because I was interested in deep questions, but also because I needed to deal with my, you know, oh yeah, your landscape. Um, so, you know, that the experience of contemplative practice was useful um, just in seeing that you know, what you think when, you know, is not who you are, right? That there's this level of, you know, the, 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 the roof brain activity, you know, of just thoughts. There's yeah. a lot more to being conscious than just rational thought, you know, that there's other below it. You know, you see anybody who has to sit for more than, you know, if you do an intensive for more than a few days learns that like the rational thought is just the, you know, or the discursive thought. Let me put it that way. Discursive thought right. is just upper layer and there's all these deeper layers you know which are you know very difficult to access and you know it's unclear what access means right um but you know that said it launched me first of all i just there was a stillness in there 
that was very useful for just dealing with, you know, the, the grief I was carrying around. Wow. Uh, and then as time went on, you know, I got established in Buddhist practice. I've been doing, pra you know, as I say, I've been, I've been staring at a wall for 30 freaking years uh, or more. And, uh, you know, you learn things from doing that. You learn things about the nature of awareness, right? The, 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 the stabilization of attention, which I think is very useful if you're interested in the if you're interested in the scientific study of consciousness yes yeah yes so. and how that arose I, I, i'm i'm all right so you get out of school right and then what did i do then then i took a year and a half off because i really needed some time off and then i did like everything i was uh i went back to new york for a while i was a bouncer at the rocky horror picture show on a street which was a trip and a half. Uh, I, was a, I was a foot messenger for a long time. That was a lot of fun and a lot of very weird. Um, and then I ended up, because um, that was my plan, I had a friend of mine who was Canadian, and there's these, there, I think it still exists, this job up there in resources, resource management called tree planting, where basically you go out for like three or four months into the bush of British Columbia, and you know, you're living in camps, bush camps and you're, you know, literally you're going out into these clear cuts with, you know, a hundred pounds of, of seedlings in, in a bag and scrambling over, you know, it's unbelievably hard work in the most beautiful, crazy environments you could imagine. So I did that for a while. That was, uh, and everybody does it because of the money. It actually pays very well, you know, yeah. it, it's piecework, you know, you get like 25 sure. cents for every seedling you put in. Uh, um, so that, you know, that year and a half off, I did lots of other things, uh, you know, all kinds of different jobs, you know, was a waiter and that was all great, but it also taught me like, oh my God, I need to get back to the, <laughs> right. I went back to university and, you know, grabbed those big marble columns like, oh God, let me back, please. <laughs> um, so I did that for a year and a half and then I, and oh, the interesting thing about that was one of the last jobs I did, and I was there for about seven months, I went back to New York City after the tree planting. And I got a job as a um, as a scientific programmer at the Goddard Institute for Space Studies, which is a NASA installation on 113th Street and Broadway. It's right over the um, restaurant that you know if you have in Seinfeld, right? You know the old yeah. 19, the, 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 you know that 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 diner. Yeah. This is so weird. There's a NASA climate uh, facility above above there. And so what was interesting about that for me was you know not only was it my one of my first scientific jobs. But I remember one day asking, you know, after working there for, you know, about a month and learning, I was doing like, you know, some basic programming and I went to my boss and Nez Fung and said, you know, well, what exactly are we studying here? And this is 1985. And she lays out for me the argument for climate change, right? This is 85. Nobody had heard about climate change before. And she says to me, well, we think human activity may be changing the climate. We're running models of what that would look like. And we're, you know, starting to look for the signal that we're changing the climate, right? And, uh, and I said, well, what's gonna happen if we change the climate? And then she lays out that whole thing. And I remember walking out, my mind was blown. I walk out onto, and walk down to Riverside Park and I walk down, I'm just like, you know, WTF, like oh, the world's gonna end. Like, what are you talking about? And I try to tell my friends, I'm like, dude, you know, that night in a bar, I'm like, dude, you know, we're gonna change the climate. Yeah. The oceans are gonna rise. And everyone's like, yeah, man. Uh, yeah, man, sure, thanks. Um, and so that was my introduction. So like, unlike most people, you know, I was, I got steeped in climate change long before there was any evidence that oh. just, you know, clear evidence that it was happening. Sure. And then by 88, my mid nineties, clear evidence existed. So I've always had a long, long interest in climate change uh, and um, 
so yeah, that's where that started. Then I went after that. I went to um, uh, uh, the University of Washington in Seattle. I got a uh, for graduate work. I had a fellowship yeah. there, and I was there for about six years, which was also Pacific. I fell in love with the Pacific Northwest. That's a whole you know trip in itself. Um, so yeah, and then after that, you know, postdoc, and then you know, was very lucky to land a job in upstate New York. Came back to the East Coast, which I love, and I've been now, here. Were you writing? Were you writing all this time? Did the stimulation of of what what is this narrative ability? Your wordsmithery to be able to put these words together, so and and really to connect them to a story that can. Yeah, that's an interesting question. So, you know, like I said, my dad was a writer. My mom was a writer, too. And my mom was my first writing teacher in many ways. You know, we'd have some assignment, uh, you know, in school and I'd come back and I'd bring it to her and she would go through it. And I remember like this one piece of advice. She says this sentence, it's got elbows in it. You know, this is this is an awkward <laughs> sentence. You should always you should always shoot for short sentences, short descriptive sentences with action words. You know, she told me this when I was like nine. Um, right. So I was lucky to have, yeah, some really good writing teachers, you know, my parents early on, my mom in particular. And then um, I remember the day that uh, I was, I had some really great friends who are still great friends in graduate school. And we were in an argument. We were arguing about whether or not physics was a language. Mathematical physics was a language because I'm a theorist, you know, so I'm, I'm enamored yeah. of mathematical physics. And, uh, and we were arguing about this and my buddy had been a, he used to work for the Exploratorium, the museum, the amazing museum in San Francisco. And yeah. they had a small magazine that would do uh, thematic issues. And he's like, well, if you're so sure of this, I just got the flyer from them calling for articles and this the next issue is gonna be on language. So um, I was like, great. So that was the first piece I ever wrote, uh, which was, you know, is mathematics, mathematical physics a language? And that's what started it. And then I was very lucky, the second piece I wrote for them the guest editor was Casey Cole, who's one of the great science fiction, science writers in the United States. And so she and I, you know, became very good friends. She eventually went to Discover Magazine as one of their top writers, oh. and she started taking articles from me. So that is what allowed me to then have a long, start a career as a science communicator, as a, you know. And then by the by mid-2000s, I was at the point where I was kind of didn't want to do science journalism anymore. I yeah. wanted to write about my own ideas, and that's where my first book uh, on science and religion came from. So... Let's can we spend a little time there? Sure. Because I'm I'm fascinated with this uh, with this concept. I I, I I I love consciousness and I love the idea. You know, like Feynman says, uh, God is too big for the stage. You know, we just can't of course he also said shut up and calculate so that's another that that's a, another piece we'll we'll discuss but anyhow in that this idea of where there is a disconnect where there really shouldn't be and there should when there's so much overlap in what we're doing and I love like when you were talking about in your TED talk which I advise anyone it will be on the link uh, uh, where, where you're talking about Instead of talking about this from the religious standpoint, what if we dug deeper and talked about what was the impelling drive below? And let's go there. Yeah, the aspiration. The aspiration. That's what that's what the first book was about, was about aspiration. Yeah, you know, so I think the science versus religion debate, you know, um, really? yeah, right, right. The problem with that is it's really you're not talking about you're not talking about science. What you're, you're talking about is you're talking about science and political entities, right? Because human, you. What, you know, so 
the term I use is human spiritual endeavor, right? So the idea that like, you know, there's been, if you look at like um, the history of scholarship about religion, there was this recognition around the you know, mid or early 1900s that there was a difference between the experience that people have in what would we call a religious context and the you know the socio-political forms that are you know that go emerge around that so people like uh, like marcia Eliade was someone i i read a lot about actually what happened for that book my university is great in that it allows me they have these things called bridging fellowships and i got to spend uh six months in the religion and classics department at my university reading like the canon of religious studies and religious studies is different from theology right yeah. you know it looks it looks sure. at religion as a broad human phenomenon so you know what is important there is that you know human beings have always had this call to the sacred right now the sacred is something you know you want to be careful about how you define it what you you know what you mean about it but sacredness is really an experience right so for 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 hunter gatherers there would be a, gla a glade or a rock or a tree that you know and anybody who hikes has this experience right you come to some place that just is like whoa you know there's some mojo here right so this has nothing to do with a conception a dogma about a deity or not a deity whatever you know this is about this human experience and so there's like the you know one of the most famous important books in this is um william james the variety of religious experience Right. Where he goes through and he interviews lots of people and, you know, he talks about that people have this experience and that it's universal and it's it's ancient. Right. So I, I you know, so one of the reasons I really like the word sacred rather than spirituality or something that I'll use both is that it what sacred refers to specifically is Roman temple architecture. You know, it has nothing to do with like, you know, what happened to you in, in church or in synagogue or whatever, um, because the Sacer was the interior domain of the um, of the of the temple. And that's where you had to attend to the needs of the gods. That's where your attention, your focus was different um, as opposed to the profanum, which was the region outside where you could sell your Grateful Dead tapes and your peanuts and everything. So, you know, that's why there's this difference between the sacred oh. and the so the sacred is really a, a, an attitude. It's an approach. It's an attentiveness. And what I was arguing in the book was that this whole debate about science and religion misses the whole point, because what we really should focus on is people's experience of what, what they respond to as being sacred. And my argument was that science has always been. Science has been one route to respond to that. Um, so that, you know, the aspiration to know the true and the real, capital T, capital R, uh, is something that is common to science and human spiritual endeavor. Um, and then, of course, like everything with human beings, you know, at some point that endeavor may become, you know, may develop structures that have politics in them. And I'm not interested in the politics. I'm not interested right. in the dogma because I would consider myself an atheist. I'm atheistic. That kind of idea doesn't make much sense. But I have a profound sense of the uh, more, you know, that there's more than just, you know, than than, you know, just the, the the accounts of the world that come in science. There's many other there's many other ways to apprehend truth uh, in the world than just science. But science is, is exactly. you know, is it comes from that aspiration. And so, so I was I, I've been thinking about this for a long time and I was thinking about what if uh, God was love no i mean actually the actually the the experience of love that all of us would experience is a tiny little filtered uh, uh, uh you know filtered through all that an experience of what it actually is and then people surround around that experience of love 
and begin to build a dogma out from it and try to try to describe it in some way. But that 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 experience of love that all of us get a chance to experience in one is a filtered down of whatever that 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 I'm trying to describe as right. right. Well, you know, there's uh, um, uh, uh, Armstrong, I've forgotten her first name, the uh, author who, you know, has written beautifully on religion. Yeah. You know, she has this idea that, uh, you know, the golden rule, you know, the golden rule is common to all religions, which is do unto others as, as one would have do unto to oneself, which also is kind of an expression of love. And there's an expression sure of that. Is. So that idea... You know, what we call love, you know, love, there's, uh, it's, you know, we apply the word. It's it's this sort of, what it is, is a sense of connection, connectedness, you. you know, you. and I think that is. is what's at the root. And this is what contemplative practice, you know, happens in contemplative practice. Once you get, you know, after spending hours and hours and hours, you know, and with training, tra you know, training in contemplative practice, and you learn, because what you learn in contemplative practice is the, um, to stabilize your attention. Because that's the problem with the mind. I mean, you know, listen, the mind evolved to do this. It's great, but it kind of bounces around. You know, it's this, sure. that, this, that. And with uh, contemplative practice, you know, you learn to sort of stabilize that. And then other aspects of being conscious can become, uh, can come to the fore. And, you know, that sense of, of, of a profound, non-discursive connectedness is pretty much what everybody describes. A sense of unity, oneness, you know, whatever. And um, Exactly. You don't have to get, I mean, it, you don't have to get woo about it. I mean, it is woo in the sense of like, it's profound. The, you know, the, the, those experiences are amazing. Um, but, you know, it lives at some root level of, of to be aware of, of this organ, any organism that is self-aware or has awareness at all. In some sense, I think that that connectedness is just part of it, part of the experience. That is beautifully said. Thank you. God, thank you. That 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 is that connects me so I mean I while I have I have I do meditate and I have done some meditation. I've never gone to the places you've gone. I have done it psychedelically. So mm -hmm. I did it through mushrooms and I did it through but what it what that gave me and 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 like everyone I know virtually who's ever done it is that all it does is it gives you an idea of what's there. And then you have to go back and go, all right, now do the hard work to get there. Yeah, right. That's now pretty the much hard work. It, that's it's, just a short, it, it, it's just a short, all right, we'll give you a preview of coming attractions. Yeah. Now go back and do the damn work. You know, what's interesting is that, you know, so, uh, you know, I do Zen. Um, that Zen, uh, uh, that's the form of Buddhism I practice. And, uh, you know, when you do like an intensive, you do a seven-day intensive, which is intense, you know, you'll start to start, you'll start to, you know, have experiences, you know, they call makios, you know, we're basically, you know, because with Zen, you're, you know, you meditate with your eyes open and you'll see on the screen in front of you, you'll just like, whoa, what is going on? And I remember going to the, you know, you have regular meetings with the teacher. And I remember going to the Roshi and being there explaining this. And he's like, yeah, that's great. But, you know, don't pay attention to the scenery, you know, because like, that's not the point, you know, once you know, once attention starts to stabilize, then, you know, the, 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 the perceptive organs, the ears are going to start, they're just going to start going off on their own. The first, during that, you know, I described that first meditation intensive I had. So that was two days and it was really hard, right? Anybody who's done meditation in the beginning, it's so hard because it's so God, yes. boring. Yes. It's boring. Right? Yes. But that's what you got to get through that because the mind is like, oh, give me something. So one of the things that happened was um, it was on day two and I'm sitting there and I'm just struggling to like keep sitting there. 
And I had, you know, I'm a big Bruce Springsteen fan, of course, coming from New Jersey. And I had the, the entire, the entire Born to Run album tracked through from side one through side two, including the little gaps in the between the song. It was just to make, because my mind was like, hey, man, I need something. So like, here, I'm just going to throw this at you. Enjoy it, you know. Um, but one of the most amazing things that happened in that experience was that I, I had reached the point where I was like, that's it. Fuck it. I'm getting out. Yep. I'm getting out of here, you know. And just as that was rising, like I was ready to get up and leave, you know, the whole point of the, that meditation practice is like whenever you have thoughts, you know, whenever you, whenever you lose the breath practice, just label it thinking and let it go. So just when I was at the peak of like, I'm done with this, you know, thinking, I let it go. And it was like, wow, all that emotion, all that intensity, just blip, it's gone. And that was my first recognition that like, oh, you know, there's really something, it's not this stuff that's just running through your head. There's more, there's more to being aware than just those, those thoughts, you know, there's, there's something below this. And now if you can get past the boredom and, you know, and that, you know, uh, in my thinking scientifically about life and about um, uh, cognition and, you know, this plays a big role for me now because now, you know, now that I see, I think, you know, this is one of the things I think it's crazy is we have this whole philosophy of mind you know, we have these domains of velocity of, of mind and neuro, neuropsychology, you know, and that, you know, contemplative practice is not part of that, which seems a little ridiculous, because how can you have a philosophy of mind if you haven't examined your own, you know, because, you know, the weird thing about consciousness is one of the few things that third person accounts just are, you know, it's unique. Consciousness is unique, and the third-person accounts are really not going to do much for you, or all, there's only so much they're going to be able to do. I, I was thinking about that, about what, what would the next math look like if it had subjective variables that you actually had to put in the consciousness? Because, I mean, what the hell is that? When you, when you, look, at a, you look at a photon, uh, you know, at a photon and it decides whether or not it wants to be a wave or a particle, depending upon whether or not you look at it, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah, but what you can't. Is, I mean, I've thought about this a lot. It's not clearly, I really want you. Thank you. Get, help, help me to think about this differently. Well, I mean, this is an open question. It's not clear to me that you're going to be able to have the kind of mathematized account of awareness, of self-awareness. Exactly. Hallmark of, of, of science. Because it's just, I mean, it, it's possible, but I think one has to be very careful because the problem is, you know, the whole thing about experience is that it is immediate, it is self-contained, it is, um, there's, there's a word for it, it's autopoetic. It's an autopoetic, it, it, is, it bootstraps itself. And so trying to oh. account for as a third person or you know, in a mathematical formalism, it's, you, know, you may just end up never get there. out the very thing that you're looking for. So I'm not sure. <laughs> exactly. You know. I, I, totally, I, I totally get that, that there isn't, there isn't a way because well, merely maybe, by thinking I about it, that's changing. That's that's open. I mean, maybe not. I think you know. I'm not. It's not clear that there's going to be. Yeah. Um, we're gonna need. So you know, you brought up quantum mechanics, which is interesting. So you know, one of the interesting things that happened while I was in Boulder, right? Boulder. That was the era of Fritzschroff Capra and yeah. the uh, his book, the um, the Tao Physics, which which I have to tell you is wrong. <laughs> totally, totally wrong. And I'll tell you why it's wrong. So that whole sort of new age, yeah, 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 of, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, like oh, you know, of consciousness of you know the observer affects the observed. You know, the problem with that was is you know quantum mechanics is remarkable. It's amazing, uh, uh, but it's got no interpretation. There's there's it doesn't it doesn't come unlike Newtonian physics, which was kind of obvious what was meant by it. 
quantum mechanics has no interpretation. It's agnostic to interpretations. And what that whole new age thing did is it chose one interpretation, the Copenhagen, and said, oh, that's what quantum mechanics tells us. Yeah. But, you know, there's there's the problem with interpretations is it's they're, they're not they're just interpretations. So you can't just choose one and say that's what quantum mechanics says because there's things like the multi-world inter many worlds interpretation which I hate but it's still that one is just as valid as Copenhagen so you can't say that oh look this interpretation which fits Buddhism is the yeah. one that we're going to take so so it's a much more open interesting question now um, so I'm just actually I'm part of a of a group that you know we are now looking at um, classical Eastern philosophies. Yeah. Uh, the, the philosophies of, of India and, uh, and and Asia and their philosophies, not as like, oh, this this shows, you know, quantum, you know, quantum mechanics shows this is true. But instead saying, look, these came from a different line of of reasoning, a different um, they had a different uh, um, focus. Right. The Western philosophies, because it was a monotheistic, had this sort of view of like, oh, what you really want is the God's eye view of the world. Right. Yeah. That's what science yeah. is going to yeah. give us the view that you know, the objective, perfectly objective God's eye view. The, you know, the classical India and classical Asian philosophies, because of their emphasis, particularly on, on contemplative practice, were much more about epistemology, how you knew things, yeah. rather than ontology, which was what the Western was focusing on. Oh. So, you know, what we, you know, what, one of the things we're looking at, and we'll see where it goes, is how uh, people like Nargajuna, who was, uh, you know, one of the, the, he was the Plato or whatever, the Aristotle of, right. of Indian philosophy, um, uh, Shantideva, these were all like giants. These were super oh. smart, you know, really clear thinkers, how their views, uh, um, uh, you know, there's a philosophy called, there was a philosophical movement called Yogacara, which uh, was very much, had elements that you know echo sort of what happened in continental philosophy at the turn of the century. People like Husserl and Heidegger, yeah. you know, what's called phenomenology. So you know those views may have. It's not like oh, quantum mechanics shows they're right. No, not at all. It's can we use the ideas from these philosophical backgrounds and see if there's anything we can tell that might be helpful in uh, in in interpreting quantum mechanics. More than that, in suggesting new experiments. Because the point of science, right, is not like having some interpretation that you glue onto your science because you've got a philosophical bias. It's, is this philosophical perspective helpful in, in suggesting new experiments that could tell one, one uh, interpretation from the other? So I think that's like super interesting and super exciting, but it's very different from sort of, quantum mechanics has a lot to teach us, but it's not, and I really caution against, if, yeah. we, if we're interested in science and Buddhism in particular, Quantum mechanics is not really the place you want to look. It's much more the mind sciences that yeah. I think is going to be some, you know, the most interesting places to connect them to. So you who look out as uh, 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 to the universe and, and, and what things are going on, how do you choose? How do you collate something to be of interest in, to spend time when you know that there could be thousands of lifetimes that you could possibly do. What what is Adam's? What, what what's on your on on well, deck? Well, you say thousands of lifetimes. Are you talking about reincarnation? No, or? no, no, no. I meant thousands. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not really sure what to do with that. I'm, I'm, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm I'm talking about thousands of of current lifetimes. That you oh yeah, yeah, right, right. No, oh. no. I mean, God, that's right. I mean, everything is interesting. Everything is I know. and complex. So how the hell do you decide? And life is finite. I'm now 57. 
Yeah. And uh, I don't know how many more years I'm going to get, especially with what's going on now. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's really hard because I've got, I mean, I, you know, <laughs> this, is, this is the dilemma every day because I, I, have, I have a research group that does my research group with my graduate students. And, you know, we've got, you know, we've got, we're, we're well funded to study astrophysical yeah. fluid dynamics. So we study things like how stars form out of um, clouds and like giant clouds in space. Yeah. We study things like um, uh, planets, how planets can lose their atmosphere when they're uh, because of starlight boiling away the atmosphere. Yeah, so very bread and butter kind of astrophysical topics, which is, uh, you know, is beyond beautiful. Oh, yeah. But at the same time, I'm also interested, you know, now I'm doing a lot of work on uh, the evolution of civilizations and planets together, right? That idea has gotten really, I'm really interested in that. So this is this whole idea of complex adaptive systems, which connects yep. to network theory. Um, you know, and that's like, that's pretty complex stuff and you can't just sort of dabble in it. Uh, and then, and then I'm also I'm doing a lot of work on... All right, but, but I, I want to start stick with number two before we get to number three. Right. So, so... Uh, is there is there a group around the world? Because I was thinking about how this was when, when in the fifties you wanted to get an idea out and to share it and to be able to go. And the difference between now and twenty twenty, you want to connect with other people who are thinking about the same things that you are doing. It's it, it seems like that this is a real. Uh, a real opportunity to be able to do this and to find the people and to be able to have the kinds of conversations that you want to have uh, and to do the kind of work. Uh, how, how are you looking at it? Well, you know, it's still, you know, I'm a scholar. And so it's still the, schol the scholarly networks that were in the 50s are still, you know, around now, you know, yeah. and that is generally the milieu. The milieu. The milieu. Uh, oh, um, yeah, I have it, yeah. So, so it's like, but what's happening now is that it's much easier for me to figure out how to cross boundaries. I'm all about crossing boundaries in, in disciplines. So like today, I was working on a paper. I'm working on a paper about planetary intelligence. The idea that, uh, you know, to what degree um, as planets evolve, is there cognitive, can you think of there being sort of, you know, global scale cognitive activity? So, you know, the Gaia hypothesis, which is sure. something, you know, still very debatable, but there's aspects of that about microbial activity, how microbial yeah. activity you know, sort of, you know, develops these feedbacks uh, across the planet that allow, that can develop at least some control over the other coupled systems. Right. So, you know, that's a whole field. And so, uh, you know, today I was looking at some papers about that. I was looking at papers on wow. complex systems, uh, complex, um, complex adaptive systems, CAS. Uh, that the view of that of uh, of of what are called I'm going to pronounce this wrong mycohondrial networks. These are the fungal networks between trees. Tree roots have these, and so the trees actually have there's some kind of communication between trees in a forest. So I had to go look up at that. Now it would have been much harder for me in 1950 to even find a paper on that. I would have to go to the library. And now it's like Google, Google, Google. I find the people who are interesting. Maybe I'll email them and say, hey, I'm looking for some help with this. So in that way, uh, it's much easier to cut across disciplines and find out, find scholars who, you know, uh, are doing things. I want to ask you this, just, uh, just I'm, I'm jumping on you right now because we uh, because of I, I would only talk for you for for years. But but just the, this space, would I would I recognize that the planet was alive 
would I even have the consciousness to be able to think about what life was if it is a life form? Well, this is a huge, so the Gaia hypothesis is still, you know, so the Gaia hypothesis is a very interesting, uh, has very interesting history. Um, you know, it was James Lovelock who first realized that the, that life, this, you know, the, the totality of life had, on the planet had completely altered the atmosphere. Like there would not be any oxygen in the atmosphere if it wasn't for the activity of life. And so that, you know, he was, had the idea that, look, you could use, if you could detect oxygen in a distant planet's atmosphere, that would be evidence that there was a biosphere there. So after he had that thought, he then began to sort of develop this, the, the, what he could eventually with Lynn Margellis, the uh, amazing, brilliant um, uh, microbiologist, uh, developed this idea that there, you know, that 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 the planet functioned was a superorganism in some sense that developed uh, feedback loops between its component parts that were, were able to keep the planet in uh, less like your body keeps your temperature stable. Sure. Um, so that the guy, what's interesting about the guy is guy the hypothesis got criticized a lot. First of all, because it got embraced by the New Age movement. So. <laughs> Oh, we did um, again. I tell you, yeah. we, boomers, we boomers have done it more and more and more. All right. Anyway, so go ahead. So, uh, but so what, what people really objected to was the idea of teleology, that evolution doesn't have a goal, right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, so, but, the, the, but uh, um, Margellis and Lovelock were very careful to say, we're not saying the planet's alive. We're saying the sum total of the biosphere or the biosphere as a whole exerts forcings that you know, uh, create uh, uh, feedbacks that that can hold the planet, and then it, and it, that it, they're evolutionary. Yeah. So there's been this long debate about whether or not that can happen. What's an interesting though is that no matter what people thought about the Gaia hypothesis, that the basic tenet that the biosphere is a major driver for planetary evolution just completely got accepted, and was then so Gaia hypothesis turned into Earth system science, which is now the absolute bedrock of understanding Earth's evolution. So there's still the question, it's, you know, Gaia can still be, uh, some people will still argue about whether or not you can think of Gaia uh, in evolutionary terms. Um, but, you know, I find the idea very compelling and I think there's a lot to it. And what's interesting now is been with exoplanets. We now, you know, we now discover, we now the universe is full of planets where now we can see those planets. So uh, people now, there's this whole idea of exo-Gaia and there's the, uh, and that's, I'm, you know, doing some work on this of looking at how all planets, in order for a planet to stay inhabited over long terms, it may need to establish these Gaian feedback. So it's, you know, God, the Gaia hypothesis is, is, is being resurrected again uh, in a way that, um, you know, people are looking at. So a lot, you know, that early sort of pushback, uh, they're still there. And I think there's some, uh, some compelling arguments against yeah. it. But the overall architecture of the idea is still, I think, is now actually even more useful now that we have now that we have uh, planets to look at, yeah. to look for life, and the way we're going to look at it is got to be through the, their atmospheres, by characterizing their atmospheres. The whole Gaian idea that biospheres control and you know d determine the composition of atmospheres, that's like that's central. That's central to our entire astrobiological effort. I, I we we uh, had a uh, Renee and I uh, had a um, um, a scientist on that was working on the web. Uh, telescope that's going to be going up oh, yeah. and so wow that's that's going to give you a lot of information yeah yeah no it's true you know what people i always want to you know have people understand so this was the subject of my most recent book the light of the stars um is that uh you know we are we are that the, we're that close 
to being able to have data about life on other worlds. You know, we've been arguing about it since the Greeks, but you know, we are the deep web will be the beginning. And then the next generation of telescopes beyond that, the hundred meter telescopes, telescopes whose mirror is the size of a football field. Those ones, we will really be able to characterize the atmospheres of these distant worlds. And from that, that means we're gonna have data about life on other worlds. I don't know whether it's gonna say there's life on other worlds, yeah. but instead of just yelling at each other about our opinions and our biases, we're gonna have actual data to, to analyze. So it's, it's, we're like, you know, 20, 30 years away from a complete transformation in, our, in how we talk about life in the universe. And I, I look at it just from a mathematical standpoint. How could you, in the laws of large numbers, not have this happen in other places? Yeah, that's a really interesting thing. So, so this was in the book, The Light of the Stars. Um, we did, a, a, a colleague of mine, Woody Sullivan, and I looked exactly at that problem. We wanted to see uh, how all this data about exoplanets, right? We now know that pretty much every star in the sky has a planet or a family of planets. Every star, except for the really wow. big problem. Yeah. So every, every star you look at, you know, when you go out at night, they all have at least one world orbiting it. And, you know, 20% uh, of them have worlds in the right place for life to form. Earth, you know, worlds like, you know, orbiting like the way the Earth orbits. So uh, we did the calculation. That means that there are 100, no, no, sorry, there's 10 billion trillion. That's my favorite number now. 10 billion trillion planets where the experiment has been run. The experiment with life and planets has been run. Yeah. So in order for us to be the only place it's ever happened, all 10 billion trillion of those worlds, except this one, the experiment failed. So, you know, now it's possible. It is still, po I mean, listen, oh, yeah. it's, not, it's not irrational. It's not irrational to say like, well, maybe the odds are 100 billion, one in 100 billion trillion, in which Absolutely. case we're the only one. But, you know, it does, you know, it now, with the way I, for, the way I phrase it, it now falls on the pessimists to explain how, with that many experiments being run, what filters are there? What, you know, what are the filters that oh. keep life from ever forming? So yeah, that's kind of the argument now. So it really is in the camp of the, the pessimists now to sort of give a compelling proof for why with 10 billion trillion experiments, they would all fail. But, you know, if that's true, that means that that evolution or, you know, the laws of physics and chemistry are such that there really is this incredible barrier to allowing it to happen, even though it happened here. Yeah. All right. So what's this third bucket that you're that you're working well, on? Well, the third bucket center? is aliens. The third bucket is I'm now uh, I'm working in what is called techno signatures. So, you know, I'm sure you're aware of SETI, right? The Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And, you know, that's a really cool field and everything. But it was never, I, you know, this Woody Sullivan, the guy I talked about, who I collaborated with, Woody was my, when I was a graduate student in, at the University of Washington in like 1988, yeah. Woody was one of the professors there. And he was the only guy in the department who was working on SETI. Because in those days, SETI was kind of like, if you worked on SETI, everybody else was kind of like, just fearless. You know, he was, a, you know, he was a great radio astronomer, did, you know, but he was just interested in this problem and he didn't give a blank about yeah. what anybody else thought. And so he yeah. and I would no, have great that, I'll say, yeah. yeah. And so I always, you know, I didn't, I never worked in it because I didn't, what I didn't like about traditional SETI was most of SETI was still, and still is focused on beacons that somebody's sending us a signal, you know? And so then you got to do the sort of, uh, you know, the honeymooners thing of like, well, if they know that we know that they know that we know, then they know, <laughs> know that. And so that was just like, 
I mean, it's useful, but it was just, it was a little too science fiction-y for me, because you had to imagine what they, you know, what the aliens were, the alien civilization was thinking about. But with techno signatures, you know, with having all these planets, that whole game has changed, right? So now, you know, there's, there's a huge amount of effort going into what we call biosignatures. Lots of people are calculating alternative biochemistries, you know, what are all the different ways that life might form, and how, from a distance, would we be able to see that in terms of atmospheric characteristics, right? right. So techno signatures is look, says, look, you're gonna be looking at these planets anyway. How do you know it's not gonna be more common to find like some industrial solvent floating around in the atmosphere that you could detect? Or, or you know, some kind of mega structure that's gonna, you know, pass across the planet while you're looking at it. Right. How can you know for sure that that's not gonna be the thing you see first? So you have to prepare. Oh. So there's this whole effort now to come up for, for, for biosignatures, to come up with a library, to, you know, theoretically come up with a library of possible biosignatures so that when we start looking and we see something weird, we can look at our library and go, oh, look, that's, uh, you know. So for techno signatures, the effort oh. now has got to be to do the same thing, right? Because the Is laws to, of physics have to apply. Exactly. Right, right, right. And, you know, and, you know, um, unless you're, you know, a, a, te a technological civilization on another world it's not going to be magic, you know, it's still going to be using the laws of physics. So, you know, so the question is, what kinds of inadvertent signals might a civilization just going about its business? They're not sending us a signal. They're just doing their business. What kind of signal, what kind of imprint in the light we get from the planet might be there? And so that's so this effort. Ah. So we, I'm the principal investigator on the first grant that NASA has given to do, um, uh, you know, to think about intelligent life in 30 years. Because NASA got burned like in the 80s where you know, they had a very good SETI program and yeah. Congress was like, this is a waste of money, why are you doing So the NASA was like, okay, that's it, we're done. We're not gonna touch this again. So now there is actually, Congress is now, it's a different generation. Congress is like, yeah, that sounds like a cool idea. So we're just starting this effort now, a, a sort of a, you know, the problem with SETI and techno signatures has been no money. Like everybody's yeah. doing it on, anybody who's doing it is doing it on the side. Now there's a little bit of research money for people to start trying to systematically yeah. think about this and figure out like what are good signatures? What are, you know, I mean, so we can stop just yelling at each other or arguing in the middle of the night over, you know, a beer, but to actually start doing some math and exactly. doing some work to sort of figure out, well, what would be detectable? What would be, you know, what might occur? Now this is, there's a lot of challenges in this, right? I mean, oh, yeah. um, so you're going to start with what is you can, you're going to start with what's obvious things that like we do, and then you got to figure out right. So I mean I want to ask how all right now we are light years, parsecs, whatever you want to do, some distance away, and we're trying to detect what's coming off of the Earth, and and they're then they're they're detecting what would yeah, they what yeah, would they pick up what would they be thinking or what what would, what would they be able to pick up from if they what had we, a big enough telescope they could tell we were here if they had a big enough telescope they could see the the lights at night they could see the they could see city lights <sighs> then we need that hundred meter we gotta invest yeah, in that hundred right. oh come on you know, man if they looked at the infrared they would see heat spots from you know uh, active our activity so you know. Yeah, so we're already in some ways, you know, uh, marginally detectable. And imagine that we managed to make it through the Anthropocene and climate change. You know, right. we'll, you know, in another 200, 300 years, we may have large-scale solar collectors, you know, on Mars, or not on Mars, on the moon or something, or right. we'll have them in space. Those might be detectable. We, you know, if you're using lasers to communicate 
You know, it's, it's, it probably makes a lot more sense to communicate between interplanetary vehicles via laser uh, um, than using radio. And those might be detectable. If you're in the right place, you might see a flash of laser, you know, across your... So, you know, uh, you know civilizations, civilizations yeah. will produce unintentional techno signatures. And so our job now is to kind of ima- begin systematically imagining what those might be and which ones are... What would they look like? Which ones are going to be most detectable? Which ones are going to be most common? So what you really want here are the stuff you can't get away from, right? So if you're a civilization, you're using energy to do work. That's like the definition of civilization. You're harvesting energy from your uh, planet and you're using it to do the work of building your civilization. The second law of thermodynamics says there's consequences of that. There's going to be, and there may be detectable consequences of that. So, yeah. Uh, so, all right. Well, I had uh, so so just uh, optimist, pessimist. Where are you right now? Because uh, one of the guys that I that I had on uh, reasonably spontaneous conversation, who is the head of uh, a biointegrity.net, is on a on a, a mission to uh, that. Okay, the Earth is in the intensive care. So all he's doing is working on the lungs and the heart. You know, what are they yeah. doing? Rebuying back uh, rainforest uh, yeah. in, in yeah. Amazon, yeah. getting it, to, getting it to the Native American, uh, to the Native. Well, they are Americans. Indigenous it, population. Yeah, the indigenous right. population, so that they can, uh, so, so that because it's so cheap to buy it, and so they they can get and then start planting and getting the big resources there, the coral reefs. The, the, so right. what what is your from from your own scientists? Are we on the edge are we gonna are, are we ahead of the curve are we behind the curve or what 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 i don't know how even how to ask this question my optimistic am i optimistic about the human future yeah so, um i get asked this question a lot since this is you know what the last book was about and i did a lot of you know book tours about this and so my answer is <laughs> yes i'm an i'm optimistic because what's the alternative you know <laughs> <laughs> would suck so um but i really think you know this is what I'm a, I believe, I, you know, I, my, my gut feeling is that there are other civilizations that have made it through this, that, um, you know, my whole argument in the book and my, some of the research I'm doing is that this kind of transition, the Anthropocene, as it's called, the entry into the Anthropocene is probably not uncommon that, you know, once you learn how to once a civilization learns how to harvest energy large scale from its planet, it goes through exponential growth and it runs up against the limits of the planet. Um, and so uh, I feel somebody's figured it out. So we can figure it out too. Now, whether we will figure out is totally, I don't know. You know? Yeah. Because the way I like to put it is the metaphor is we are a cosmic teenager, right? We're as a, as a species, as a civilization, we are entering our adolescence. And as we know from adolescence, adolescence is a dangerous phase. Like, you know, you gain power over yourself, but it's not clear at all that you have wisdom and you know, you may drive, you know, you get the keys to the planet, but you may drive the planet off a cliff. So, uh, yeah, I guess we're just gonna have to see, hopefully, you know, I mean, there's, there's, there, I, you know, I mean, human beings are capable of amazing things. We're yep. also capable of profound stupidity. Uh, so yeah, let's see what happens. I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful, yeah. you know, but it's gonna require, it's gonna require some pretty profound evolutionary changes in us. But of course, you know, evolution, the only reason, a species only evolves when there's a gun at its head, so to speak, right? You know, there's got to be evolutionary pressure. It's got to be selective exactly. pressure. Right. So, you know, this is selective pressure for us about whether or not, you know, we join the cosmic winners or the cosmic losers in all this. 
Is there any reason for you to believe that a human being would be the end of evolution or whether or not we are just uh, a, a link along an evolutionary continuing chain? Oh, yeah, we're a link. I mean, why Why would, you know, I mean, especially given the fact that we have the power to change ourselves. Yeah. You know, genetic engineering means that, like, I doubt in, you know, 100,000 years that human beings look very, they're going to look pretty different, you know in ways that may be like really freaky deaky and startling, but sure. I would just imagine that, you know, I mean, cause listen, um, you know, he, he, homo sapiens are only like 300,000 years old. Three, I know, he has a baby, that are you kidding? Yeah, so, you know, if we make it much longer, you know, if we make it, I mean, one of the problems, so I'll have to end after this, so you'll excuse me, but uh, so my, uh, my parting words here will be, yeah, one please. of the difficulties in thinking about techno signatures, uh, I was just lucky to be part of a paper that David Kipping, brilliant paper that he put together where he calculated, uh, he sort of, did, you know, did the probability estimates for, um, if you have a whole bunch of different kinds of civilizations, young civilizations and old civilizations, who are you most likely to encounter? And it turns out, you know, it's kind of intuitive. You're most likely to encounter the much older civilizations. And so then the question is a civilization that lasts for a hundred million years, which is older than like the dinosaurs died 62 billion, 62 million years ago. What, what is it even like? What do you even like then? Like, are, are, you know, are you post-biological? Are you, are you, are you post-biological and then re-biological? Are you, are you, have you integrated yourself into the laws of physics? I mean, that's a real challenge. And that's something I'm really interested in thinking about now is like how, you know, how do you even imagine a technological species that has had a hundred million years of, you know, maybe, or maybe you just come to a stasis, like, okay, yeah, the technology, you know, I mean, look at cars, right? We were about to go through perhaps a, a well, even, you know, we've, we developed the, um, the engine, the, 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 the internal combustion engine, you know, a hundred years ago and it's changed, but it hasn't changed that much. We've been like tinkering on the edges, right? Now we have electric vehicles, yay. Uh, you know, uh, but like really the basic, you know, overall these basic ideas, they've been around like electric cars, people thought about electric cars a hundred years ago. So, you know, maybe your technology just plateaus, but either way, you know, the real question here is, is if we last long enough, what will we become? Curiosity, I do not believe will ever plateau. And as long as you have that, that's where you are. Thank you so much, Adam. What a ball. This it was, was a pleasure. Thank you. I really enjoyed this conversation. It was hilarious. All right. All, talk all, all right. Bye-bye. This episode of Reasonably Spontaneous Conversations has been brought to you in part by In Search of the New Compassionate Male. For more information, go to newcompassionatemale.com.